0: So I went looking for a story to tell. I had only produced shorts for the nonprofit sector, and my passion has always been documentary films. So I had a little story file full of about five different stories from all over the world. And I found this story in Mother Jones magazine. Uh, about Eloise Cobell from the Blackfeet tribe and her lawsuit against the United States government, which is the largest lawsuit in the history of the government. And I thought I was reading it wrong. I thought, how could this be going on today? This is probably something from the 19th century. And so I was baffled when I read on and realized this is going on right now and that there are Native American people, 300,000 families who are living on reservations with mineral-rich lands, and they have oil well, wells pumping 24-7, and they are living without the basic necessities of life because they don't get paid what they were rightfully owed for their land. And so when I, when I read that, I was incensed. I was just outraged by the injustice. But I had a little problem. I'm a non-Native person, and I had never set foot on a reservation, and I didn't know any Native people. So it was, where do I go? So I immediately called Eloise's office, Eloise Cobell, and um, tried to get her on the phone, but I I couldn't get past the gatekeeper. And she would just take messages for me, and then I'd send, you know, film treatments, and I'd send, you know, communications to no avail. And so I just um, decided that um, I was going to pursue other, you know, people that were involved in the lawsuit. And I happened to be out in Colorado attending a wedding, and I called John Echo Hawk from the Native American Rights Fund, and I asked him if I could... Spent some time with him and told him I was interested in telling the, a documentary film, telling the story through a film. And so I um, met with him, not knowing how long he would give me. He was the executive director of one of the largest Native American organizations that, you know, fought all the legal cases for the, the tribes in the country. So I, I went in and I had never met him before. And I thought maybe he'll give me half an hour. So unlike Eloise, he was extremely happy to see me because nobody was covering the story, the press wasn't covering it. It was like, if it made it into the newspapers, it was a tiny, tiny little article, but mainly it wasn't reported on. So he was thrilled that I wanted to cover this story. And so John Echohawk has become a mentor of mine and he mentored me for 14 years through the whole process and then by the time, you know, Eloise came around, and I followed her all over the country from meeting to meeting to meeting, hoping that she would just, you know, have time to talk to me. And finally, at one meeting, she said, you know, oh, you're that fire-in-the-belly lady, aren't you? And I said, yeah. And she goes, hmm, do you think we can meet, like, in a couple hours? I have a really packed schedule. And I was, like, Sure. So I waited. And of course, that didn't happen. And then at the end of the day, she said, I'm really sorry, I couldn't get to you. But how about if you fly out to the Blackfeet uh, tribe in Montana? And I had been just dreaming of that. That's all I wanted to do. And so that's how it started. So I went out there for my first meeting with her. And um, she took me and you know, she took me to a sacred burial site where 500 Blackfeet Indians were, who starved to death because they didn't get the food rations from the Indian agent in this winter of, I think it was 1896. So one by one, they starved to death, and they poured them in this mass grave. And that was a very, very difficult time for the Native people, for the Blackfeet people, and it was very difficult for her to be there standing on the hallowed ground explaining to me, and I felt the intense pain from her. And um, so that's basically how I started on this journey, and I did tons and tons of research because I was not only taking on the United States government, the Department of the Interior, uh, and the Department of Treasury were being sued by Eloise Cobell and the Native American Rights Fund. And that was John Echohawk's organization. So it was a very, very big case. And I, I just racked my brain out thinking, how am I going to tell this story? I mean, this is a legal story. How am I going to make this interesting? And of course, the only way was to tell Eloise's story. Which was, you know, she's a hero, and she was one of those, you know, women that she was unstoppable. And she had a—I a, 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 called it her her mantra. She would say to me, she must have said it to me over the years a hundred times, Melinda. I know the stars are aligned for justice, and I know that Indian people will get justice someday. The stars are aligned, and every time she said it. I believed her.
1: So, what year was this?
0: She filed the lawsuit in 1996. I came on the scene in 2002.
1: Okay, so the lawsuit was filed. When was the conclusion? And this, you said, the largest settlement in U.S. government history. How much was it for?
0: Three point four billion dollars. With a B. With a B. Wow. And that sounds like a lot of money, but the estimates for how much money the Indians were bilked by the U.S. government was $176 billion,
1: with a B. So explain that. So there's Native American land. Obviously, these are the reservations. I grew up in uh, a town called Puyallup, which is a, a Native course. American uh, reservation. So we're, we're very familiar with that. But explain yes. that and explain why the settlement came to pass um Due to the land rights and the minerals and oil and, and all that stuff,
0: so basically uh, through the Dawes Act, Senator Dawes they, was trying to help you know this country um, assimilate the Indians into our culture. So what he proposed was an allotment act, and what that meant would, was that they would basically the Indians on reservations and they would give Indian families their own parcels of land but they didn't the government didn't think the Indians were smart enough to be able to manage that land so they said we will manage it for you so they put all of the royalty payments into a trust fund the Indian Trust fund and over the course of 100 years which is why the movie is titled 100 years, this is what happened is you know the Indian people would never get they would never get reports on how much oil was taken out of their land or what grade of oil or and sometimes they would get statements that showed there was six thousand dollars worth of oil taken out of their land but The particular Indian only got $89 out of it. And sometimes it was even a minus, minus 20 for parts for the oil company. It was absolutely ridiculous that they were responsible for. And and so this was all managed through the Department of the Interior and the Bureau of Indian Affairs. And so what would happen is that on every reservation there was a BIA office, Bureau of Indian Affairs office. And so the people would go in. And they'd stand in line, and they'd stand in line, and they'd wait, and they'd wait, and they'd wait, because they wanted to get answers on their land. Why am I not getting these checks? Why are the checks so small? Um, and why is my, my land mass dwindling? So the, there, this went on for such a long time, and uh, Eloise filed the lawsuit, because as she said, they were, they were living without the bare necessities of life. We're not talking about people in mansions. We're talking about people that are living in, you know, poverty-stricken lands um, in trailers without running water or electricity. And and, in our film, we had one Navajo woman who she had to set up just to watch TV. She'd have to, you know, run a line um, from the front porch and, you know, you know, and she would... And she she had a gas line that was running through her land, but she couldn't get gas from that gas line to heat her home. So so during the winter times, she would have to move because it got too cold for her to survive. So this was an everyday occurrence, and we heard story after story after story. You know, the Indian agent won't give me my land, I mean my um, money, my funds, and he won't, and they won't give me the answers to what's happening. To my funds. And so that's when uh, Eloise just drew a a line in the sand. She actually met, she was um, a speaker, she was at a speaking engagement for a bank, uh, bankers' conference. She became a banker to learn how to read these statements. And she became the treasurer of her tribe so that she would know how this was supposed to work. And she could see that the oil companies were taking oil off the tribal lands and not putting it in, not paying it back. So then she started knocking on doors, calling her senators and congressmen. And she finally um, met with the Attorney General, Janet Reno, at this banking conference. And she said, oh, Attorney General, I have, I've got to talk to you. There's this terrible problem with the Indian trust fund, and we must fix it. And she said, OK, Eloise, she says, call my office, and we'll set up a meeting. So she did. It took about a year, and she called every week, and she was persistent, and so she finally got in, and she went to this conference, and she was supposed to, um, she finally got in to, to meet with the DOJ and the uh, Department of Interior, except they weren't there. It was a room full of attorneys And when Eloise walked in, uh, one of the attorneys said to her, now, Eloise, don't you come in here with any false expectations. And she said, how dare you speak to me like that? There are people, Indian people, that are dying every day without the basic necessities of life. And that was the last straw for her. So she drew a line in the sand, and she said, I've had enough. And she filed the largest class action lawsuit in the history of the United States government. So it was a very long battle. It was a 15-year battle.
1: And in the payout was when? It
0: was in 2000 when President Obama was elected the first term. He ran. He had five offices in Indian reservations. And he said, if I am elected, I will resolve this case we will we will resolve it and that was his promise and he kept his promise so he announced uh, as a matter of fact six months after he was uh, inaugurated he um, I thought this is never going to happen because that was during the financial collapse you know in that era and so I thought, there's no way this is going to come to fruition. And then six months later, they were in talks with the plaintiff's attorneys. And then, it, I think it was in December of 2009, he made an announcement that had, they, they had reached a settlement figure of $3.4 billion. And so, but then, it had to be approved by Congress and also by the courts. So that's why what Eloise did was absolutely impossible, because she had to have all three executive levels of the United States government agree on the settlement. And they did. But it took almost two years before Congress and the courts you know, d- you know agreed upon it and passed it, and it was done.
1: That's incredible. What is it about Eloise that I mean you you spent so much time with her you observed her life and her drive and I can't I can't imagine this was was easy obviously something she dedicated her life to I'm sure it was dangerous anytime you deal with mass wealth like that and taking on oil companies like I just can't imagine what was what do you feel was her driving force in all of this
0: I really truly believe that her driving force was the um, event that I told you about earlier, which was the Ghost Ridge, they called it Ghost Ridge, and that was the sacred burial site. Eloise, would; she had an office on the reservation, and every day she went to work, she would drive by that burial site. And there were days during the lawsuit, and there were a lot of tough, uh, tough days. Uh, when they removed the judge, who was ruling in the Indians' favor. I mean, there were amazing um, challenges for her legally. And there were days when she was just so tired of the fight. And she would go to Ghost Ridge and she would pray to the people and say, we're going to get them. We're going to get them for you. And every time they had a victory, like there were two secretaries of the interior that were held in contempt of court. Um, that every time they got a victory like that, she would go out and she would talk to the people and she'd pray to them and say, we got them this time for you. So um, it it was a very long, arduous process for her. And it took its toll on her life.
1: And is she still alive?
0: She died four months after the settlement was
1: announced. Let me ask you, I mean, normally um, you're a filmmaker and it's, so you're, you're kind of part of what we do here at Nations as storytellers. And one thing that that drives us is, um, is to, is to make available the information that we care so deeply about. And um, I want to hear about your personal journey with this. Like what was, um, what was the spiritual toll? What was, uh, what was the, that, advocacy moment. You're like, I'm going to dedicate my life to this cause. And it's, it's something that I'm willing to give. I mean, you've been working on this 20 years now.
0: Well, I worked on that project 14 years, but then when you count the two or three years on top of that with being on the film circuit, promoting it, and now it's being taught in the schools and it's been on Netflix and PBS, which is amazing. So it's been a very long journey for me as well. Um, Yes, it's, it's been it's been a challenge. And you talk about spiritual battle. Um, one in particular was that my husband and I were driving back from we had a house in Breckenridge. And we were driving back to the airport. And I felt um, I had a stomach ache. And I said, can you please stop and let's get some ginger ale? So we got off the um, highway going back to the airport. We were going back to San Diego and it was the winter time and we hit black ice going off this ramp and we were going at about 60 miles an hour on black ice and there was no way to stop and my husband could see that we were going we were going to have to go through a stop sign and he was going to try to go up the ramp on the other side but instead there was a truck coming from one side And I believe a van or a jeep from the other side. And they hit us. Full impact. We got T-boned at 60 miles an hour. And immediately the, um, the airbags deployed. Smoke came up. I thought the car was on fire. My life flashed before my eyes. My husband, when we came to a halt, he said, are you okay? And I said, yes, get out of the car. So we both got out, and then we had people coming to help us. The car was wrecked. It was, thank God, it was a Volvo, and it was a rental.
1: Safest cars on the road. (laughs) Yes,
0: and there you go. There's a good advertisement for them. Um, But I get chills when I talk about it because we were on the way to the airport. that The tow truck driver came and got us, and he looked at me, and he said, because we had no cuts Bruce's. No injuries at all. Unreal. And my husband got a little burned from the airbag, but I was sitting in the middle seat, and and the truck driver looked at me, and he said, did you have those glasses on when you hit? And I went, what glasses? Oh, my gosh. They never left my face. I had no bruising, no cuts, nothing. Well, then when we got to the airport... It was late at night, so we had missed our flight. They had put put us on a Frontier flight, and we were walking down the concourse, and there was maybe five people. And my husband said to me, Do you hear that? I said, Hear what? Listen to the music in the PA. And I listened, and it was Native American chanting music. I had never heard that playing in any airport. And my husband said, I think you have a lot of work to do. And I told Eloise about our accident. And I didn't tell her the part about hearing the native. She just wanted to know if we were okay, And I told her, yes, we were. And um, we were very lucky. And then she invited me out to, to meet her for the first time. And before I got ready to leave, she said, how's your husband doing? I said, well, he's fine. Why? And she goes, well, you know, that horrible accident that you had two weeks after you met me, don't you think that was strange? I said, you have no idea how strange it was. And I told her what happened. And she was ready to pack up her stuff and say goodbye. She didn't have time to meet with me the next day and it was a weekend. And I was fine with that. But I was disappointed, of course. As soon as she asked me about the details of the accident, she got up out of her chair, went over to the wall, and pointed at a Howard Turpening painting of Chief George kicking woman, who was the keeper of the sacred medicine bow. And he was on the top of Chief Mountain. And she said, I am going to take you to meet him tomorrow. He's 93 years old, and so she got on the phone and called the family and said, I have someone I want you to meet with tomorrow, and the next day we went, and we met with him, and we were there for two hours, and he was praying over us the whole time, and he was lighting the sweet grass, and, and it was just chilling. It was chilling, and, I was, and then she took me back out to Ghost Ridge again, and it was... And I said to her, Eloise, I know you have a lot of people that I want to tell your story. Hollywood was after her story. And I said, no matter what happens, you have enriched my life. And I want to thank you for this time.
1: That's how it started. That's incredible. So you've, you know, here you are, a white Christian woman who's, who's, um, you know, coming alongside a people who've been neglected in, in, the, in the most you know, a uh, famous Christian nation, you know, like it's, it's unbelievable to me. And so here you are a reformer. That's what we would consider you someone who's willing to participate in the brokenness right. to see, um, about, um, reconciliation, hope, salvation, you know, and so you're making this film, you're around, it's a lot, you've, you worked on that film for a long time, and then with the with the touring, what did you say, 15, 14 years? Well, I
0: worked on it fourteen years, and then I toured on it for over two.
1: Wow! So that's a long, long process. Documentaries are not easy to make. No, they're not. <laughs> what came from it? What would you say, like, you know, when you have to look back on your involvement, like, what what have you seen um, come from your film? Um, obviously, the settlement took place, but what would you say are some of the biggest victories for? For making your, your film.
0: I have never been so blessed in my life. And that's what I want to get across to people. Is that once you find your purpose. And when you listen. And you really listen. To the Lord and the Holy Spirit. Um, you just have to go for it. Because I. I kind of liken what I did to this. What I did was so. Like who would have ever thunk it. A white girl. Right. It was kind of like me saying, going over to France and saying to the French people, you know, you have a really good story about the French Revolution. Why didn't you let me tell it? (laughs) Right. Well, it's not really, you know, it's like, who does that? Right. Well, I did that, but I did that only with the help of my higher power of the Lord. And so when you have that, you know, we think we can dream big, but we have no idea the Lord's dreams for us when we are working to help others is 150 fold bigger than our own dreams. And I am proof positive
1: of that. It's incredible. Um, so I want to hear more about the new project you're working on. I mean, this was like, this project is monumental and massive as it was, was really the tip of the spear for you. You've, you've really integrated into, um, do we call this part of my ignorance? Do you, do we call them native Americans or we do we we, are we still allowed to say Indians? I grew up like it was an Indian reservation. And yes. now so yes, what, what's the politically both. correct?
0: I think it goes back and forth. Okay. American Indians, native Americans. Sure. Um, so, you know, it's been over the years; it's gone back and forth. Okay. So I call them, uh, like I'm a non-native, and they're Native Americans, um, and that's how I refer to them. And I think that that's that's fine by them. Yeah, you know.
1: Okay, that's good to know. Um, so, what's the new project, um, and and where are you at with it?
0: The new project is um, well. This the, actually, I fell stumbled across across this. Silent crisis, if you will, when I was on my tour of 100 years. And I discovered that there's this silent crisis of missing and murdered indigenous women and girls. And it is another story that is unbeknownst to most people. It's not one of those stories that's being, it's that's, you know, on the front page of the New York Times or the Washington Post. It's, um, and, and the statistics are incredible. Um, Native women are 10 times more likely to be killed, to be murdered, than any other group of women in the United States. The Alaska Native women are the hardest hit. Two out of three Native women are sexually assaulted in their lifetimes. And when their mothers talk to the daughters about being sexually assaulted it's not if you are sexually assaulted it's when you are sexually assaulted they're pretty horrific stories
1: so where's i'm just baffled by that here in the united states that that's a reality because i know like you know here in southern california if a, if a child goes missing you know it's like we have an amber alert every single your phones are going off like Signs on the highway. I mean, it's a massive. The news is covering it. Why is this such a silent reality?
0: It's exactly what doesn't happen on an Indian reservation. There are no Amber Alerts. They're starting to get Amber Alerts. This is just new. But um, they don't have... Normally, when a family has a missing daughter, they would go to the tribal police to report her Gone. And nine times out of 10, they'll get the response from the tribal police. Uh, She's probably out drinking with her friends and is afraid to come home or she's partying. If she's not back and, you know, five days come back. Well, five days is wait. you got to go. You know, you've got to get on it right is when it's happening. As we saw, I, you know, I live in, in, uh, lived in Poway when Chelsea King went missing. And within a matter of hours, they had search teams on the ground. They had helicopters flying overhead. They had police. It was all over the news. And, um, and then I think it was like five days later, they found her body uh, near the lake that she went running alone. And two days before that, she they were able to arrest the guy who sexually assaulted her and murdered her because they had found her clothing and the, his DNA.
1: So why is there such a gap between justice for, you know, anybody outside of Indian reservations as opposed to women who and, and, and girls who are on Indian reservations?
0: First of all, they don't have the funding. The tribal police do not have the funding, and that funding is supposed to come from the government. And when it comes to the treaties, you know, that the, the treaty promises they were supposed to get, you know, health care and housing and education, and what they get is kind of the leftovers of all that, and this is a perfect example of the leftovers, because there's no, Amber alerts, there's no coverage like you just described, and, um, and so it's left to the Indian families to do their own searching for their missing loved ones. And... You know, so much time elapses by then. There's there's families that there. I have a good friend who's actually a co producer on my new project, Patsy Whitefoot, and her sister Daisy went missing 30 years ago. 30 years ago, they've never found the body. They've found articles of clothing, but never the body. That family lives with this knowledge. They have memorialized her after her 10 year and then 30 year. Again, but that I met at a conference in Portland, one of the sisters, Patsy's sister, and one of the the sister that was closest to Daisy, the one who disappeared. And I was introduced as the filmmaker who's doing this uh, series on missing and murdered. And she was she just stared off into the distance. She was a blank stare. She never acknowledged me. She never looked up. I could feel her pain. Um, And then her husband, who was standing right next to me, described to me how each family member handles it differently. And how traumatic it was for this particular sister because she was the closest to her. And it's something that they live with day in and day out.
1: So there's no... There's no federal assistance like the FBI. Are they limited to what they can do? I mean, local police departments. Is there, is there a line of delineation to where yes, they can't, the, they can't it's, cross it? It's in.
0: called a jurisdictional maze. And it's purposely set up like that, I believe. It's an ongoing genocide. Um, and so it's been going on for years. Let me just give you an example. In 1996, the Violence of, uh, Against Women Act was passed. OK, there was no clause in there to cover Native women, not at all. It wasn't until 2013 when they added a little clause in there that protected Native women from domestic violence, but not rape, not murder, but domestic violence. So that kind of says it all right there. There is no coverage for them. Um, and I could tell you story after story after story of how you think this is happening in, an, on another, in another country, not in the United States, but it's, it's ongoing. And um, in 1978, one of the reasons it is so ongoing is that in 1978, the Supreme Court in the Oliphant ruling took away the tribal rights to prosecute a non-native who committed a crime on the reservation. The, the most important thing of a tribal sovereign nation is to protect their citizens. Right. And that was completely taken away from them in 1978 by the Supreme Court of this United States of America.
1: Meaning that any non-native person who commits a crime on native grounds cannot be prosecuted for that crime for that crime. How is I, that is just absolutely so backwards. I, I can't understand, I just can't fathom that.
0: So let me just break it down in a little scenario here for you. So let's say you, you go into a convenience store on a reservation. Non-native, right? You want to buy some cigarettes, maybe some booze, you know, some beer, maybe some candy. You can get all those things you want. And you can walk right out the door. And they can't do anything about it. They can make a little note and try to, you know, get recompensated later. But nothing happens. Nothing happens. It's the same with a Native woman's life. There's actually the dark web where people like pedophiles and rapists, they know now that they can get away with murder and rape. And so it's become a hunting ground for Native women. And Native women, by the way, are, are sex trafficked also. They're the highest numbers of sex traffic in the country. And the reason is because they, they're so marketable. They look. They can look Polynesian. They can look, you know, Native. They can look Asian, um, and they're very highly marketable. So it's a very vicious, vicious cycle, and it has a lot of ugly tentacles. And um, we want to expose through this film, this series, all the way back to the history of how this began, because you see, Native women were considered sacred. They were matriarchal societies, and 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 actually, when they went, the men went into war. They always counseled with the women. They always, you know, met with the women, and they have a saying, you know. And one of the um, tribes has a saying uh, uh, that the woman owns all of her rights, and what she say be the law. So this this rape and this you know, telling your daughter when you're raped, not if you're raped, this was this is completely foreign, never happened. In the early days, Pocahontas was the first abducted Native woman. So so our goal is to go back. Unlike there's a lot of um, single documentaries about this issue, and there's a lot of good, really good ones. Um, But what we want to do is we want to open it up. We want to do a six-part series that goes into that 500 years of violence and how it started. And ultimately, we want to have a campaign, a social media campaign, and a lobbying campaign to reverse the Olafont decision.
1: So that's the the goal here. That's the goal. And wow, I love it. And I love that you're right in the mix, um, going for it, because that's how, um, justice happens. Like people have to be aware of it. I, it's just, it's incredible to me that, that, um, I'm learning this for the first time and I'm I'm so thankful for you. And I'm so thankful for the article coming out in the journal, um, the nation's journal. And, um, I just think that missionally, um, the gospel compels us to these places and, yes. and sometimes it's not, um, normative missionally, you know, it's like, you're just in there telling the story and, and, and bringing about justice. And I'm, um, I hope and pray that it, it comes quickly. And, uh, yeah, tell me, um, do you have hard numbers on how many, you know, women are trafficked and murdered and like, I'm I'm sure that'll that'll come out in the in the documentary but well like... we
0: had just for one year as and also on that note I want to also make one other point. Native women are the only women in the United States that when they go missing there's never there's no federal accountability for them. Every other woman, every other group of women, but not native women. Okay, and that's what propelled me to do this film. I watched the movie Wind River, which is a dramatic film by Taylor Sheridan. There's about a beautiful young Native woman who goes missing, and she's killed, and and she was dating someone from the man camps. And that's one of the biggest problems. What are the man camps? The man camps are like North Dakota. I was out at the uh, MHA Nation, the affiliated, three affiliated tribes. Um, And they had a oil boom, I think it was back in probably 2010, maybe.
1: That's right. When every they just needed laborers. And so these camps, these like cities of tents would be. Yes. And okay. they would bring yeah. these
0: guys, these kids from, you know, they would drop out of, of college because they'd make $100,000 a year working in the oil fields. So they have this, you know, huge numbers of men. What do you do with them? And so they would bring the women in. And it was, it was very scary. And so I can't even imagine living on the reservation during these times. This
1: sounds like California state history, like the gold rush. This sounds so wild. It's
0: it's it's the same thing. I thought it
1: was like 10 years ago.
0: Yeah. So, um, so it's, it's a pretty bad situation. I don't know if I answered your question.
1: No, you're answering everything well. It's just, it's sparking so many more questions. This is wonderful. Um, just like hard numbers, like how many, how right. like do we have a any statistics? I mean, is there anybody keeping track of the data? Well, this
0: is the thing because there is no federal accountability of missing Native women. It's the own, it's the grassroots Native women who are doing the numbers. The um, National Crime Information Center in 2016 came out with a number of 5,700. Native women were missing that
1: year. 5,700 women missing. Native
0: women in 2016, but only 2% of those names got entered into the NC
1: NCIC. That's unreal. So 5,600 people missing and never found, and no one's talking about it. But yet and I don't want to make light of the situation when anybody else goes missing because it's it it needs there needs to be amber alerts there it needs to be on the Absolutely. news there need to be helicopters flying, and yet no one no one cares and that's a lot of people.
0: It's staggering. And so there, um, Anita Lucchesi, I believe her name is um, is now, she's keeping her she's uh, um keeping her own database, um and that's her life mission. Um, is to track these missing women, but you know, you know, I, I've been out there for three years researching this project, or, or this you know issue, and I see they are the most resilient women I have ever met in my life. They have had to overcome such obstacles and fighting for the basic necessities. Just getting back to Eloise's story, the basic necessities of life from their own land. And now this is the, you know, fighting for their daughters and their granddaughters and their aunts and, you know, and their mothers who go missing. You know, these stories are heartbreaking. And the fact that there's so many good women out there that are doing the work to fight this injustice. I am just one little filmmaker. But there are women who are boots on the ground every single day. And, you know, they they work day and night, they're tired. They, I look at it and I see how little has been accomplished. Just like with this, you know, the Violence Against Women Act. Now they're hoping to pass the revision under Biden, which would do more to protect the Native women, which I hope that they can. But we're still going for the big (laughs) enchilada, you know, which is, you know what, let's fix the Supreme Court ruling. This is wrong on so many levels. And like, a, just the explanation of, you know, being able to drive into a convenience store on a reservation and just take whatever you want. People, when they hear that, they can't comprehend it. Right. But it's
1: going on. W- what I see you doing is, you know, as uh, as a filmmaker is, is you're building a bridge. And, and that's a yes. big, important part of um, advocacy work. Right. And, and you're... Making this narrative and this reality accessible by the mainstream and that that needs to happen And so I'm, I'm just so grateful for you um, When I was working on a, the documentary that I did in Iraq, I just remember You know, I'm meeting with women and girls who have been so abused by Isis And I just remember like the rage would just come up occasionally and I was just uncontrollably angry at the situation. How do you? handle all of this? What are your spiritual rhythms and practices that keep you sane?
0: You know, it's really a good question. Um, because I have actually been counseled that because of the work that I'm doing on this story, because the work that I did on One Hundred Years was tough, but this is like a whole nother tough. And I I think that God has given me the gift of mercy. And so with that gift, you have to be very careful. Um, I realized this because just recently I became really emotionally involved in um, something that happened to a friend of mine, and I kind of felt like I was disassociating, you know. And so I talked to my therapist, and she said, "I'm so glad that this has happened right now because you are getting ready to go into this big venture, into this you know big you know series, and you're going to be hearing the stories." And I have heard the stories already, but I haven't heard all, I mean, the ones that I'm going to hear for the film. So that's going to be an ongoing process. And she told me that I really have to prepare myself and to um, uh, try to get in touch with my senses. It's a sensory thing that you have to, once you start feeling that you're kind of disconnecting, that you have to, like, let's say you're in a room, and I say, I look at that picture over there, and I, I look at the picture, and I count all the colors that are in that photograph. Or, you know, how many leaves are on the tree if I'm outside? Something that can, you know, bring me back to that place where I'm not so absorbed. Right. Um, so... And in reading, I found found myself in reading some of the articles that are so traumatic um, in, in, in nations' media. Even um, I've I found that it's it was hard for me to read on because I'm I'm so affected emotionally um, by by those like the ISIS, like you were talking about the ISIS and the way they absolutely you know rape and murder their children and then show the you know the the mothers you know. They're dead bodies. And so I, I, um, I'm I, very, very sensitive now. And I'm very protective of myself. Because, like I said, the work I did with 100 Years is very was difficult. There were times when we were filming on the Navajo reservation with, you know, these people who had oil and gas lands. And they were living in these trailers that had holes in them. They had to move during the winter, you know. They couldn't live there. Because they didn't have the means to live there, and this one woman just she broke down and cried on camera. And after we finished shooting, I just I just excused myself and my crew, and I said, I just need to recompose myself. And um, I just felt her pain, and so and so this is going to be so much you know different, so much more different, and so much more. Um, the stories are heartbreaking yeah. heartbreaking.
1: Yeah. It's a, it's a dance, isn't it? Like you, I meet people who work in the field who are kind of callous to it and, you know, cause they're in that world day in and day out. And I've, I'm like, man, I never want to go there. I never want to be there. I want to be involved, but I don't want to be callous to it and like hard heartened. And, uh, but I also, I want to have that, you know, that soft skin towards, you know, the, the, the hurt. I want to feel that pain, but, then the other side's true where it cripples you. And I just, I just remember like, oh my goodness. And so I, I, I really started looking at like the rhythm of Jesus and he's, he would, oh, he would constantly retreat and Retreating find rest constantly. and seeking the father on a daily. And, 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 and then like paying attention to like the two invitations of Christ to come unto me and then yes. come follow me. And oftentimes I'm so quick to just follow Jesus. I'm like, where are we going? The great commission. Right. And I had to learn that. No, both go hand in hand. Like you have right. to come to Christ for that salvation, that rest, that healing. And Absolutely. before you're into something that you're doing. And, um, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a, It's so difficult. It's such a fine dance.
0: (laughs) And I had that same realization this last, you know, experience when I felt like this. And I I prayed about it. And the Lord put on my heart, you don't know the plans I have for her. And I thought, wow, you're right. I am assuming the worst from the scenario that I was given. But I don't know what God has planned for her. And so that's when I realized I just needed to spend time with him and to just really trust in the direction that he was taking me and to, um, and that, and to really listen like that, because it was almost like a scolding. It was almost like, well, I don't think you know the plans that I have for her, do you? You know? Um, and I went, oh, (laughs) you know, it could be, you know, I just went through a difficult time in my life and you know, things are working out now. And I I think, you know, it says in, in the Bible we're supposed to rejoice during trials and tribulations because we have no idea what God's full plan is. And so many times it's those very moments that we had that were traumatic and that were dark that forced us to get in touch, forced us to get in touch with the Lord and what his will, because I would just, you know, during this time, I would just go to bed every night saying, thy will be done Lord, not mine, because I surrender. And so you're right. It is really a, and that's how you kind of, you know, it's a calling and you know that. um, And so I try not to worry about it. Because, you know, as long as I have that connection in that prayer life, that I will be okay. And, and the, when you asked me, you know, what was the best thing about 100 years? And the best thing about 100 years for me was, you know, the film won a lot of awards. That's great. But nothing compares to the fact that this film is being taught all around the world.
1: It's incredible. Colleges, <laughs> Colleges. It's,
0: it's been uh, Harvard, Duke, wow. Dartmouth you know, Berkeley, Stanford. It's being taught in public schools in 25 states in the United States. It's being taught in Canada and Taiwan and New Zealand and in Australia. And that's what I was you know, referring to when I said, you know, we can't dream as big as the Lord can. You know, when I formed Fire in the Bellet Productions, my production company, I formed it with the goal of making films that make a difference in the world. And at the time I didn't even think about in the world. I just thought, okay, I'm just going to go big. And then when you do that, well, lo and behold, the film's being
1: shown around the world. That's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) That is incredible. Well, it just goes to show that, you know, like you're, you're you know, your courage and your faith. And this journey has really just been what the Lord's asked of you. Like, you know, p- put a camera on the situation and hit record and right. become an advocate. And so I guess my my final question is how can, <laughs> I, I mean, I'm, I'm brand new to this reality. I, I've known there's been injustices. Like I, I've I've known it. Um, but how how can someone like myself or the audience um, become more involved with seeking justice for um, the native people in this specific crisis. Is there um, anything you would suggest? Um, can we can we follow you your journey? Yes, can, yes. We, you are can follow Are there other me. things we can do?
0: I have you know Twitter account one hundred years, um, and, and that'll also, be the
1: same process for the so, next this new so story. So I will
0: I will have a Twitter account for the new project too. We're we're currently our. Our uh, working title, if you will, is uh, Women Are Sacred, Missing, and Murdered. Um, but, you know, I don't know if that's that will be our final title, but that's what we're, you know, our website is. And we're just getting ready to launch the website. And so, um, yes, it would be through... T- you know, Twitter. And also, I'm really excited about forming the social impact campaign and a lobbying campaign. So I don't have the particulars on that right now, because it's all really in development. It's really early stages. Um, but I will definitely stay in touch with you so yes. you can get that information to your audience. Well, and
1: one of our values at Nations is that we don't just tell the story and let it be. Like We want to be in relationship with you for uh, forever. And we believe this story will continue. And so we want to, we want to continue to report on it. And, um, and we're excited that you're, you're an access point for us into this. And so you've already introduced us to Huron. And so there's going to be more stories of what, more reformers working amongst the native people. And it's just so exciting for us. And so Melinda, I can't thank you enough for your advocacy work, um, your filmmaking ability and just your reformer spirit. Um, you're an amazing individual and I'm, I'm so glad to have you on the podcast. Well, thank
0: you. I am thrilled to be on the podcast because, you know, I didn't know about nations media until I was introduced through Todd and um, I was so excited when you kept saying, oh, we're, we're like the Christian Nat Geo. And I'm like, wow, that's a pretty big statement. So I want to see this Nat Geo. And I love the look of your magazines. They are first quality, first class quality. So I want to commend you on that. And I want to thank you for including this story and, and my work. Um, the Lord's work that I'm doing. So thank you for the privilege of talking to you about all of this.
1: Absolutely. Well, thanks again.